Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome back to The Peripheral. Today is World Eating Disorder Action Day. And I have a very special guest named Sam, who, as of the publishing of this episode, has been in recovery for one year. For anyone that's struggling with an eating disorder, there will be resources linked in the show notes. I'll also post links on social media. I'm currently traveling on the road, so my voice might sound a little weird because I'm recording from my phone. But I hope you enjoy the episode. Please reach out if you have any questions. Hey, I'm Sam, and I have a few disclaimers and prefaces that I would like to say before we start. I recognize my immense privilege in having had consistent access to medical care. I'm sharing my experience living with anorexia nervosa binge purge subtype. I am only speaking for myself. Eating disorders exist and can be lethal in bodies of all shapes and sizes. Eating disorders exist regardless of race, gender identity, sexuality, age, or socioeconomic status. You are sick enough to get help. Every eating disorder is valid. Every eating disorder is profound suffering. Every eating disorder can potentially be fatal. You are worthy of help no matter what your illness is telling you, and you are not alone. I recommend that everyone reads the book Sick Enough by Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani. Links to NIDA resources and hotline will be in the show notes. Obvious content warning for eating disorders. I've tried to keep this story as safe for listeners as possible. No numbers, no details about behaviors, nothing shocking. This story is about my eating disorder, but, more importantly, my way out. If you take one thing away from this, it's that you can get out, no matter how hopeless you feel or have been told that you are and I am walking the path with you. You're not alone. It is never too late to be what you might have been. And so we begin. My first cognizant memory was thinking that I was fat, being horrified and humiliated and disgusted by my own body. I was three. I was on vacation with my parents and newborn baby brother, I was standing on the steps of the swimming pool wearing a bathing suit I'd always hated wearing, an American flag print one-piece with cutouts on the center and sides of the stomach. 
In that moment, looking down in visceral shame and horror at my body, a voice, a train of thought, an insidious seed implanted in my brain and never left. I'm 29 now. I grew up with parents who were still together, but due to my father's extensive traveling for work, my mom essentially raised us as a single parent. I was an incredibly anxious child, deeply attached to my mother, riddled with guilt over sins I did not commit, terrified of sleeping, and utterly unable to connect or relate to my peers. I have been told and know now, as an adult, that child Sam had undiagnosed and untreated anxiety, ADHD, autism spectrum disorder, OCD, and ARFID, which is Avoidant Restricted Food Intake Disorder. Food and the concept of eating have always felt wrong to me, extremely uncomfortable and bad and unnatural. I've always been hyper-aware of the physical sensation of food in my stomach, perceiving it as viscerally disgusting and dirty. I would pick through food, examining it and trying to find some magical sense of reassurance that it would be alright if I ate it. I hated most foods, and had several OCD-related food items that I couldn't even be in the same room with for fear of it touching me, contaminating me if I even breathed in its air. One day in elementary school, I was sat at the lunch table and someone's carton of chocolate milk, one of my ultimate sources of fear at the time, touched my arm. My bare arm. I panicked, ran to one of the teachers, weeping, begging to be let out of the cafeteria. She did not grant me my request. Embarrassed and shaking, I walked back to the table, buried my head in my lunchbox, and continued to cry. We moved from New York to Florida on Valentine's Day of my second grade year, February 14th. The Florida school year ends at the beginning of May. In those three and a half months, I missed so much school that they wanted to hold me back from moving on to the third grade. I felt like a raw nerve all of the time, absolutely out of control of my emotions, feeling everything so intensely, sensorily overwhelmed, and like no one was seeing or hearing the tremendous amount of pain I was in. I felt inhuman, other, like there was something intrinsically, innately wrong with me. My mother is my angel and has profusely apologized for not meeting my needs as a child, it wasn't her fault. I don't know what anyone could have done to alleviate me of the fear and the pain. We moved back to New York the summer before my fifth grade year, and this is when things with food begin to become more notably out of whack. I had always had rituals and magical thinking regarding food, the way I ate, utensils that felt safe to eat with— and the violent contempt and repulsion towards my own body had only grown stronger with each passing year. But, for some reason, around this time, I sort of became aware that changing your body was a thing. I started compulsively exercising, rollerblading around my driveway most diligently, and secretly exercising in my bedroom for hours into the night. I'd always been hyperfixated on my thighs and was hoping that I could will them into being something different, much smaller than what they were. I stopped eating breakfast, started counting my chips and goldfish crackers. I thought I started noticing a visual change, but maybe not. And while anxiety and preoccupation with food increased, 
My other anxiety, the other intrusive thoughts that plagued me, the perpetual sense of dread and misery had started to get white-noised out. I had a task to focus on, a mission to complete. By middle school, I had stopped eating lunch, too. A few friends and I would hide in the bathroom during lunch, avoiding the cafeteria. Apparently, our absence was noticed because one day the male vice principal came into the bathroom looking for us and reprimandingly asked, If there was an emergency situation, how would we know where to find you? My smart little ass responded, Well, Mr. Neenan, we would be in the bathroom. How astute. One of my bathroom friends and I became obsessed with fitting into children's clothes, would sneak to the CVS in the mall to buy laxatives took pride in knowing the caloric information and everything, in ordering quote-unquote kitty cones from the local ice cream shop, in recording and documenting our daily food intakes. It exhilarated us. This sounds like a bad Lifetime movie, I am aware. Don't worry, it gets worse. I ended up changing schools, from public to a very liberal, hippy-dippy private one, and during my annual physical exam, my doctor expressed concern about my weight. She asked me about my eating habits, and I was honest with her. She did not call my mother into the room. She did not continue the conversation. She fucking responded, I think you should start eating breakfast. That was the last time I saw my pediatrician. I was having a hard time adjusting to the school change, even though it had been my idea. Being around my peers had never been my strong suit. School had never been my strong suit. Actually, attending school had never been my strong suit. One of my aforementioned bathroom friends had been bulimic. I was always, rather proudly, just anorexic. And on one rather miserable but ultimately unremarkable day, after getting home from school and eating dinner, the thought popped into my head that if I tried hard enough... I could uneat, And I did. And so, that miserable but ultimately unremarkable day marked the beginning of purging behaviors that would consume my life for the next 16 years. I am, admittedly, a black and white thinker, someone who thinks and feels and sees things in extremes, in tandem with my fear and anxiety around food in general and the desire to eliminate my earthly body— after that first instance of self-induced vomiting, it became an absolutely unbreakable rule that I must purge everything I ate. This was all coming to a head by the time I was 13. The bad storm had been brewing, and it was starting to feel like keeping this secret was almost as bad as the secret itself. One night, after having purged my dinner... I tearfully, shamefully went into my mother's room where she was sitting on her bed reading. It took her a minute to realize I was crying. She looked at me and gasped out, What's wrong? And I became hysterical, couldn't speak. I just stared at her, sobbing, willing her to somehow know the dark burden I was carrying. She started guessing, Are you pregnant? I shook my head no. Is someone hurting you? I shook my head no. She paused. Are you anorexic? I wailed. Are you bulimic? Face wet, nose running, drooly mouth, I raised my head and choked out the words yes to both. 
She held me, and I just cried. You like to think that letting out a secret is this positive, cathartic, alleviating experience when, in reality, you still feel just as bad, only now the person you told the secret to feels bad too. I was fortunate enough to live in an area with one of the best adolescent eating disorder programs in the country at my local hospital. My mom made me an appointment there, and at age 14, I was formally diagnosed with anorexia. From there, it was a blur of doctors' and therapists' offices, treatment facilities, and hospitals until I was 23. My house was a war zone. My family dynamic destroyed because of me, my health, my emotional instability. Sleepless winter nights alone in my bedroom listening to the sound of the snowplow at 4 a.m. Crying because the hunger was too deep and too cold to sleep. I would sometimes get in physical fights with food, be so anxious and angry by the time it was ready to eat that I would physically destroy it. Imagine a five-foot-tall, emaciated gremlin awake in the middle of the night, punching a microwave burrito in a dark kitchen, drowning in their own tears and snot. I had started binging, in addition to purging, in my later teen years, and at one point had been doing it so violently that I fractured a rib, gave myself a hernia. I was horrified. These were like car crash injuries. But I never stopped. At 17, I was accepted into one of Canada's most prestigious conservatories for classical acting. Had to drop out because of my eating disorder. Two treatment stays later, at 19, I tried again. Lasted longer, but ended up dropping out a second time. We had 12 to 16 hour days at the theater, and instead of sleeping, I would stay awake all night binging and purging. Theater school and my illness were not conducive to each other. And so I chose my illness. Said that I was leaving to pursue performance art, more avant-garde, abstract forms of performance, but the reality was just that I chose my illness. This is where my brain starts to unhinge. The binging and purging was constant, incessant. A young friend who I had met in treatment years earlier committed suicide, and I felt like she was haunting me. Not sleeping, not allowing myself sustenance, seeing ghosts, hating myself. I was being very reckless making very bad decisions, ended up in a relationship with someone I genuinely hated. It felt like a fitting punishment, though, because of how deeply I hated myself. We moved in together after less than a month of dating. He worked all day, most days, and I had just left my job. This created the perfect environment for me, alone all day, to divinely self-destruct. Binging and purging over and over and over. Boyfriend ended up realizing the extent of what I was doing, but he didn't seem terribly to care. Eventually, I stopped shutting the bathroom door, essentially vomiting in front of him. By May of 2015, I had gotten myself into such a state that my body could no longer keep water down. Became so dehydrated that I had a fever that was almost 105 degrees heart rate in the 190s. Admitted to the hospital via the emergency room. IVs in both arms, my hand. 
heart monitor, concerned that cardiac arrest was imminent, electrolyte imbalances, kidney and liver abnormalities, bedpan, nasogastric feeding tube, diagnosed with severe gastroparesis, paralysis of the stomach. I was transferred under the care of my adolescent eating disorder specialist doctor, despite being 23. Mentally, I was gone. Pitch blackness. I wanted to get out of the hospital, and I wanted to die. I had resigned myself to the fact that I was never going to get better, that my eating disorder would kill me. I certainly wasn't capable of living without my illness, and I certainly didn't want to recover. Something that I had always struggled with was the notion that if I was able to just quote-unquote give up my anorexia and recover, it was like it never actually happened, negated how acutely I struggled, negated the fact that I ever had an eating disorder at all. If I could just quote-unquote let it go and get better, I was never really sick in the first place. I just wanted to get out of the hospital and continue back on my death march. I had decided that I was done with treatment. Generally speaking, I was just done. On one particularly stressful day, a nurse came in and told me that my tube feed was being increased. That was the first I'd heard of it, and I was not having it. I wanted to speak with my doctor immediately, and apparently this was the day that he was utterly unreachable. Every time a nurse would come into my room, I would ask them to page my doctor, and they did, unsuccessfully. By the time afternoon rolled around, I was in hysterics. Doctor finally came in, and as it turns out, he was having a day. He flipped shit on me in front of my mother, just unloaded. This evolved into a screaming match between he and I that culminated in me pulling out my remaining IV and then, like a slimy wet spaghetti noodle, pulling out my feeding tube and slapping it into his hand. I signed myself out against medical advice. And then I found myself in a bit of a predicament. Do I just... die? Feeling very purposeless in the grand scheme of things, feeling like my quality of life was non-existent. Broke up with degenerate boyfriend. He cheated on me while I was in the hospital. Nice. Moved back in with my parents. Brain fried. All I knew what to do was to immerse myself in the dark black waters of my illness. And then, on a whim, I started working at a tattoo shop. Found little moments of normalcy, and I liked them. Thought, maybe now was not the time to expire after all. Incorporated coffee, bagels, champagne, and marshmallow topping into my diet. Thinking, wow, I'm really living now. Started dating the man who would eventually become my husband. Went through the traumatic death of my childhood dog. Thought I was going to die with him. By that time, I had left the tattoo shop. Couldn't deal with ongoing sexual harassment that had become physical. I focused my energy on my relationship and what was left on binging and purging. And this is the point where my brain sort of split, started being able to compartmentalize. I was obsessed with finding those moments of feeling normal, 
ironically because the majority of the time my behavior was so abnormal. But I decided to put it away in my brain, deciding that my eating disorder was just who I was and how I was. The behaviors were so normalized and instinctual to me that I literally deluded myself into thinking that I was now normal. Adopted a dog. My beloved, precious soulmate. A rescued Pomeranian named Brett. He was taken from an extreme neglect and abuse situation, and when they rescued him, he barely weighed three pounds. He was emaciated, terrified, almost bald, tail and back leg crooked from improperly healed broken bones. In the first pictures I saw of him, there was no light or life left in his sweet eyes, and I knew immediately that he was my boy, my sole son. We immediately, instinctually became everything to each other, helping one another nurse our broken spirits back to health, back to something more whole. And he had to restore weight, and he had issues with food. The universe sent me the dog version of me. Things continued on for a while, just me and Brett and my deluded sense of normalcy. Eventually, we moved in with a boyfriend. The eating disorder was ever-present, but never discussed between us. My mother would periodically express concern, but a dialogue never continued. Boyfriend and I bought a house together, my dream house, and moved in with my Brett and his cat. Our perfect family of four, in this perfect house, in what I very much felt like was the perfect relationship. Boyfriend and I got married something I thought I'd never do. Honestly, I didn't think I would live long enough to ever be in a situation where marriage was considered. I didn't think I would live long enough to have to figure out a lot of things, and my existence felt like this sad, aimless float through trauma and confusion. But now, aha, I could be a housewife. Complacent within my own life, but not having to do any real emotional work to figure myself out. Who I was, what I wanted, what fulfilled me, what did I want to do? I wasn't happy exactly, but felt relief in being absolved from figuring that out. For many years, I had been existing in a very tired body, but one kept in limbo. Weight not low enough that I needed immediate hospitalization, but low enough that I felt some sense of safety and neutrality. A more palatable body for human existence. My mother would continue to express her concern. Strangers felt welcome to constantly comment on my size, body, and weight. Husband remained mum. Most days, I would abstain from food during the day, cook dinner for husband to have when he got home from work, then stay awake binging and purging after he went to bed. This was the routine. Dreaded having to deviate from it. The gastroparesis also meant that any attempts to eat normally would cause me tremendous physical pain, usually prompting either immediate diarrhea or involuntarily vomiting the undigested food the next morning. Husband was very, very into outdoorsy, physically active activities, 
and it was a source of strain as I was just literally too physically depleted, exhausted, and incapable to join him. I dreaded things like having to get in and out of the car, going down the basement stairs, having to walk to the mailbox. It hurt. It's a particular, all-consuming kind of hurt that you feel when your body is literally devouring itself. Atrophied muscles being eaten and used as fuel. Calcium leached from your bones. Having no reserves of any kind because your body is frantically burning through all of it, trying to sustain its own life. It had been so long, though, that I was just used to feeling this way. A Light in Darkness June 2019, I was sent to angels in the form of two newly hatched baby starlings who had been rejected from their nest. I hand-reared them. When they opened their eyes for the first time, I was the first thing that they saw. My touch and voice were the first things they felt and heard. And this unlocked true, genuine, profound motherhood within me. I was their mama, and they were my babies. Kate Bush sings it. Soul birds of a feather flock together. We became a flock. Me, big boy, and a little beb. A year later, I would welcome a third rescued fledgling into our flock, my weird, wonderful Weechi. In March of 2020, my Brett started experiencing some pretty persistent health problems. We would think we'd have a handle on one thing, and then something else would crop up. Being his caretaker was my full-time job at this point, and I was terrified. He continued to decline and decline, spending months in and out of the ICU until finally, on October 3rd, 2020, I lost my little boy. I went to the ICU for the last time with my baby in my arms and left with a ceramic paw print. This was when the iron curtain came down in my brain around Brett's life and death. That was something we could not touch. I was genuinely mentally incapable of accessing that grief. In retrospect, I think my body and mind knew that I was not healthy enough, physically or emotionally, to process it. And then, my marriage fell apart. What I wholeheartedly believed to be the perfect love, the perfect relationship, went up in smoke. Absolute hostility, emotional abuse, constant arguing, constant screaming. And so I suggested we try marriage counseling. Well, my anorexia got completely scapegoated as being the sole reason we were in marital distress. I was mortified and I was furious. Not once in our six years of being together had this man ever expressed concern, talked to me about my illness. Our marriage counselor urged me to see a doctor to find a psychologist. Unsurprisingly, after six weeks or so, our experience with the marriage counseling was unsuccessful. Came to a head when she said it seemed like there was no way we could make our situation work. We legally separated, and he moved out, leaving me alone in our house. No dog, no husband.
only my thoughts. And so I grieved and mourned and agonized over the loss of that relationship, and in my distress I realized something. Forgive me, but this is where the story really begins. In the situation now of having to rebuild the entirety of my life from the ground up, I had a thought. What if I tried to construct a life without the eating disorder? I had been trying to live with it while dying for nearly 20 years, and so far, nothing, no aspect of my life had ever worked out. And I thought, this is a time where I could really, really spiral, immerse myself so entirely in my disorder and mute out all of the pain and the chaos and the loss in my life. I've lived in that space before. It was essentially what I expected myself to do. But what if I didn't? What if I didn't? And so I very anxiously, timidly, found and reached out to a therapist. She took me on as a client and immediately referred me to a dietitian who also took me on. My therapist then referred me to a specialist outpatient eating disorder clinic in Denver so I could start working with a doctor. Every one of them are wonderful, but immediately things were hairy. I have been labeled as having a severe enduring eating disorder, which is a category that does not come with a very good prognosis, nor a lot of hope. There were concerns over my blood work and my weight, over the duration and intensity of my illness, and concerns if I would be able to keep myself safe and stable in an outpatient setting. Found out I have severe osteoporosis. Back on medication for the gastroparesis, which we were hoping would help make eating physically more tolerable. They suggested that my mom temporarily move in with me to check and monitor and flush my toilet, prepare meals for me, eat with me, and sit with me after. And so she did. My mother is so far beyond wonderful, but this was a situation that was bigger than both of us could take on. At first, I tried. I really tried. Eating food, keeping it down, not binging and purging, blood work every week, meeting with my outpatient team multiple times a week. But it was not clicking. My appointments were spent in hysterics, frantically, desperately asking them why I had to eat. I very, very genuinely did not understand. And the pain from my gastroparesis started getting really, really intense, to the point that I would be doubled over on the floor, crying to my poor mother who had no idea how to help me. I had also not had a bowel movement in several weeks. And then, the siren call of binging and purging, or just purging, became too strong to continue resisting, and, in my mind, that was also the only way to assuage my debilitating stomach pain. There must be nothing to digest. I got secretive and sneaky with my behaviors, hiding them and letting my mother believe I was trying. I give you truth in the pleasant disguise of illusion, as Tom from the Glass Menagerie says. 
but I was honest with my treatment team and concern was growing. I was having a hard time managing anything, and my facade was slipping fast. My doctor was the one to finally set the boundary. That I was going to die, and that her recommendation was that I come to Denver to be admitted to a specialist hospital there, the only facility in the country that is considered to be a medical ICU for severe and extreme eating disorders. I was fucking dumbfounded. I knew of this place and was absolutely incredulous at the thought that I could be sick enough to need to go there. I did not understand how I even met their admission criteria. I had been so deep in the trenches before and could not accept that I was there again, let alone in an even more precarious or critical situation. My doctor said she would reach out to them. In the meantime, my doctor insisted that I get my vitals, weight, blood work, EKG, urinalysis, and blood glucose checked immediately. Being a responsible adult, I have no primary care doctor, so I went to urgent care. Cue the shit show. As it turned out, everything that could be wrong was wrong, and they wouldn't let me leave. Frantically back and forth on the phone with my doctor and nurse in Denver, trying to figure out what the fuck to do with me. My EKG was abnormal. My nurse described it as extremely scary. My blood glucose was low. My blood pressure and body temperature were low. My weight was dangerously low. My heart rate sitting was in the 150s and hit 200 when standing. Liver and kidney values in the urinalysis was off told I was critically dehydrated, told that I was being transferred to the ER and needed to go now. My mother drove me and I spoke on the phone to my nurse in Denver. Your heart can literally stop at any minute. You needed to be in the hospital, like, weeks ago. I let my boyfriend and my best friends know what was going on, and I think they all thought I was going to die. Irene my most cherished friend, expressed to me later that she really thought that was the end. So, one brief ER stint later, I headed home, immediately binged and purged and hoped I'd live through it, and the next day called the ICU in Denver. I was told that the team had reviewed my case and accepted me into the program. Next, we wait for insurance to authorize. It did. Then we wait for a bed to open up. I did not think I was going to survive those two weeks. I was unable to eat, barely able to drink. My mind and body had both given up. I could barely walk, couldn't stand in the shower. It hurt to be awake, it hurt to try to sleep. I was so viscerally terrified of going, for so many reasons, but mainly because I was afraid of being the biggest one there. This is an extremely common and, in the words of my inpatient psychologist, very boring fear for eating disorder patients to have. My family came over in rotations, essentially sitting shiva and imploring me to drink some of a nutritional supplement. I could not. My mom stopped staying over because it became too traumatic. She could not bear watching me die. 
My partner came out to visit at one point. I begged him, hysterically, not to fly home because I was sure it would be the last time I saw him. Once he left, I was going to die. My best friend and her mother, like my own second mother, came over one night to see me, her mother begging me to fight for the little spirit still burning inside me. My ex-husband came over the night before I left. He brought me a pair of socks. And then, finally, by the grace of God or whoever, it was time to go. To Denver, not the afterlife. June 2nd, 2021. My parents flew with me. I was instructed by the hospital to use a wheelchair while traveling, which I refused. Strangers were staring. I felt like I was some sort of walking death totem. My mother later remarked that it was scary watching me walk through the airports. I was going so fast, careening around and not slowing down, like I was headed to hell and wanted to get it over with. I was in agonizing pain on the flights. Everything hurt so brutally and deeply and I was just crying and panicking. By the time we made it to Denver, I had nothing left. Like my body's last rally was getting me there. A car was sent by the hospital to pick me up and transport me there. I said a tearful goodbye to my parents and essentially collapsed into the back seat. The driver was an older man named Jay, who said he'd been working for the unit for 10 years, picking up patients and taking them to the hospital. And dear sweet Jay, bless his heart, was trying to engage the dying anorexic in the back seat in a conversation about Stephen King and how the sky's not as blue on the East Coast. Through tears, I chime in when I can. We get to the hospital. Brain cannot acknowledge the fact that I am there. Two nurses meet us outside, waiting with a wheelchair. In I get, on I go up to the unit. I get taken to my room, where the RN is waiting for me. Immediately, I am hooked up to telemetry to monitor my heart. Immediately, blood is drawn, my blood glucose is checked, and an IV is placed. Meet with my dietitian, who concludes that due to the severity of my gastroparesis, a feeding tube should be placed immediately, and that we would work our way up to incorporating oral intake. Tube inserted. I am crying and so, so tired. Meet with my doctor. Meet with my physical and occupational therapists, who do all sorts of strength and balance-related tests to determine how badly your muscles have shit the bed. Meet with my psychiatrist and social worker. I just want to go home. Your CNA or certified nursing assistant, is with you 24-7 monitoring everything you do. I am deemed a fall risk by my PT, so I was put on gait belt, which is essentially a human lasso that goes around your waist so the CNA or whoever can hold on to you if you have to move or use the bathroom. OT says I have to use the shower chair. I use a color-depositing hot pink shampoo and conditioner, which we find out has exploded in my suitcase. 
my wonderful CNA offered to wash the carry blood goo off of my belongings. I am measured and weighed, naked, in a long yellow gown that's made out of transparent tissue paper. I am unable to go to the bathroom. Being watched by the CNA was something I expected and was used to, but having to navigate toting around the IV pole, the feed pole, the telemetry bag, and using a commode was too much. I didn't pee for almost 24 hours, and it was not for a lack of trying, let me tell you. I find out that once you're deemed strong and stable enough by your doctor and physical therapist, you're allowed to walk six laps around the unit per day and can be cleared for outings. Basically, you're in a wheelchair and your CNA pushes you around the hospital grounds or to the hospital gift shop or to the chapel if you're so inclined. Two 30-minute outings on weekdays, three 45-minute outings on weekends. You come to crave and relish those precious moments of fresh air. I call my mom and tell her I want to go home. I cry and write in my journal that I hate myself and that I am the biggest one there. My room overlooks the mountains and I wish that I was dead. The next day is more of the same. Meeting with all of your providers, discussing your medical issues and what should be done to make your body stop dying. My doctor tells me that anorexia binge purge subtype is the most likely manifestation of anorexia to be lethal. I blink at her. I half-jokingly ask when I can leave, to which she responds, Not anytime soon. I want to evaporate. My CNA is nice, just had a baby, knits all day, and chats with me. I meet with my psychologist for the first time, and this is where the universe sends me an angel. An actual angel. Camila, Camila, you saved me. You taught me how to save my own life. She knocks on my door and enters my room, bright blonde hair shining in the sunlight. She introduces herself and says that she brought me a jade plant for my windowsill. She sits down, asks me how I am doing. I tell her I feel like I don't need to be here. She says, you absolutely need to be here. You were going to die if you didn't come here. I reply, but I didn't die. She turns a half smile and wryly says, almost. I like her immediately, feel deeply, kindredly connected, like we have known each other for eons or in some other mystical world. I've yet to mention this, but I am a massive fan of Tori Amos. Like, massively massive. Like, follow her around the country on tour and go to every single show and she knows me not only by name but has given me a nickname massive. If you're wondering, it's Peachy Death after Neil Gaiman's death character. And as it turns out, my psychologist is also a massive Tori Amos fan. And also, as it turns out, we have the same favorite Tori song. She said this was the time to embody the song Yes, Anastasia. The lines, we'll see how brave you are 
We'll see how fast you'll be running. My eyes are saucers as I tell her that I have that line tattooed across the backs of my legs. She tears up, tells me she has chills. She became the absolute glue that held me together as I felt like my pieces were crumbling. We made more meaningful therapeutic progress in the month that I was there than I had made in the last 15 years of being in therapy. She tells me things like, she really thinks that this is my time, that I am in a chrysalis about to emerge into something free and beautiful. She helps me grieve and mourn the loss of my illness. She asks me, aren't I bored with anorexia? She's serious, and I actually think about it. I think, maybe I am. I coin a phrase that becomes my mantra, grim acceptance. Camila writes this on my whiteboard, tells me that my mantra has been making its way around the staff. She tells me about the swamp of agony and the path of pain, and how the swamp of agony is misery, but it's familiar misery. And it's easy to let ourselves stay stuck in the mire rather than walking out through the path of pain, which is more painful than staying in the swamp. But if you keep journeying forward in spite of the pain, it eventually leads to something else. We spend a session listening to certain Tory songs and talked about what they bring up for me. I cry more than I have ever cried. I tell her I don't know how I would be getting through this without her. I meant it. I ended up being there for a month. The most excruciating, brutal, agonizing month of my life. The most profoundly painful thing I have ever done in every sense. Now that the picture has zoomed out, it was also the most necessary, the most transformative, the most beautiful. I was on the feeding tube for the duration of my stay while slowly introducing more and more intake orally. For two weeks, I was in unbearable physical pain and overcome with such intense nausea I could barely open my eyes. Most days, I was woken up at 4 a.m. for blood draws, and then again at 5 a.m. when my feeding pump went off. My father came to visit me a few times, flying out to Denver from New York. A few friends visited. My partner drove out and stayed my third weekend there. One of my CNAs illicitly brought me her hair straightener so that I could try and look more hospital chic for my boyfriend. I did my makeup for the first time since I'd been there, navigating around the left half of my face that had the feeding tube taped to it. It meant everything to me to see him, but I could also tell how hard it was on him to see me in that state. I promised him that I was getting better. I meant it. I was exhausted and frustrated and scared and uncomfortable being there. But I mean this when I say that the staff members were absolutely exemplary. Some of the kindest, warmest, most genuinely wonderful human beings I have ever known. Besides my beloved Camila, I also had really brilliant experiences with my social worker and my psychiatrist. My social worker became like my hospital mommy, tucking my feet in and pulling her chair next to my bed and resting her legs on the side. 
but also a complete boss-ass bitch. By the end of my time there, we were telling each other, I love you. My psychiatrist was the weirdest woman I have ever met, but the most effervescent, the most productive, the most capable. My dietician did nothing wrong other than being my dietician, which is territory that comes with automatic suspicion and disdain. We both had dead Pomeranians. I had five attending doctors while I was there who ranged from bizarre to lovely to cool to hot, hot, hot. My physical and occupational therapists were both great, but I dreaded those meetings. And for maybe the first time in the history of being treated for my illness, I felt truly seen. Seen beyond the shroud of the anorexic shadow and given hope that maybe my life could be different. This was instilled in me by my providers over and over and over until I started to believe it. I was still sick and miserable, but I started to believe it. There was also a wonderful therapy dog, Remy, and his human, Eric, who would come visit twice a week. I would let Remy onto my bed and was allowed to give him his special treats, mini marshmallows. One time we ran into them while on an outing, and Remy tried to pull me out of my wheelchair onto the ground to give him belly rubs. We weren't allowed to be outside if it was over 90 degrees, so on those days for outings you could go sit inside one of several designated areas inside the main hospital. Well, on one of those days, my CNA rolled me up to a sitting area on a general medical surgical floor. There was a man sat at a table, talking, loudly, on the phone to someone who I learned was his brother-in-law. I opened my journal, gearing up for another session of writing about how much weight I was gaining and how much I hated my body. I hear the phone man say, All four of them. She sawed all four of them off. I shut my journal. Turns out, this man's wife sawed all four of her fingers off and the husband had to get the fingers out from inside of the saw. For what it's worth, I think her prognosis was good, but holy fuck. I relayed that story to everyone I encountered for days. At one point, my tube clogged 30 minutes before evening shift change, which was a nightmare, but we handled it. Tube feed smells fucking horrible. It was leaking everywhere, all over my bed, down my shirt. like. Onto my boob. Pulled the tube, replaced the tube, zoomed me over to x-ray to make sure it was where it was supposed to be. Crisis averted. I was also formally diagnosed with nicotine abuse. I shit you not, it's in my my chart included in the list of my diagnoses. Anorexia binge purge subtype. Extreme. Severe protein calorie malnutrition. Generalized anxiety disorder, major depressive disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, hypokalemia, hyponatremia, hypophosphatemia, nicotine abuse. In the grand scheme of all that is wrong with me, let a fella have her jewel. Anyway, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. The plan was to continue my care at another more traditional inpatient program, but I ultimately objected. 
This was my battle, and I was ready to face it alone. I begged my outpatient team to work with me upon discharge, and eventually they agreed. My mom would fly out to Denver, and we would stay for a couple of weeks so I could have a few in-person appointments with my outpatient doctor. And so, one month later, I was free. Shaky, but more stable, more safe, more whole, more hopeful, and out to do this thing on my own. And I did. I have been. One of the things that my social worker had said to me was, give it a year. Just give it a year. I have been out of the hospital now for nearly eight months, and that's pretty damn close to a year. To quote Tori, you found me, you found me, burning, burning in despair. You said then, I know, dear, it has been a brutal year. As always, Tori says it best. 2021 was my year of profound loss, profound grief, profound sickness, profound healing, profound acceptance, profound letting go. My own year of magical thinking. Joan Didion, too, says it best. Anorexia is a word I have a hard time saying, a word that especially I have a hard time saying in relation to myself. It trips me up, stops me in my tracks, takes my breath away. I have been sick for two decades. Consumed by this unutterable illness for more of my life than I have not been, the sharp-toothed shadow always looming behind me, clinging to my back. I did not welcome her, but I've always let her in. For nearly twenty years, I have let her in. I've cycled in and out of treatment facilities, hospitals, doctors and therapists' office since I was fourteen. Feeding tubes and IVs and blood draws and finger pricks and the hums and chirps of machines confirming that I still exist. Broken and fractured my soul over and over. I've danced with death before, and I continued to let her in. This year, my year of profound loss almost took me with it, to try to conceptualize something like, I almost died. Like, really almost died, borders on the absurd. In anorexia, you are invincible. Until you're not. I now realize that I, myself, am not. I spent one month in the most intensive medical care facility for eating disorders in the country. I was seen, and I was saved. My soul was stripped bare, and the team of miracle workers there nurtured me back to something more whole, more capable, more hopeful. And then somehow, through the divine grace and mercy of the universe, anorexia let me out. She fucking let me out. My hands shake as I say this. Another thing that feels impossible to conceptualize. 
This year has truly raised me, but it also spit me back out, released me from myself, and so I continue to grieve and continue to heal. I feel lost most of the time, unsure of myself in the absence of my familiar, self-contained anorexic bell jar. But I was let out. And so the rest will come into focus eventually, and I allow myself to believe that. Lean into the blind faith that healing will happen. I end that year and start anew by letting go and also holding on. Recovery is possible for everyone. I believe that with every part of me. Change waltzes in with her sister, Pain, waiting for you to send her away. Wish her well. Break the chain. Break the chain. I feel you. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 